We'll read the entire first chapter of Jonah 1, but our text for the sermon this morning will be just the first three verses. Jonah is the sermon series that I went through this summer on my internship. And Lord willing, as I'm invited back into this pulpit, I'll just keep working through Jonah so you can hear these messages too. Jonah chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us, that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Thus far the reading of God's word, and may he add his blessing to it. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, why is the book of Jonah in the Bible? That may seem like a strange question to start off with, but it's a critical question for our understanding of this book. 
Part of why I ask it is because the book of Jonah is unique among the other minor prophets. Of the 12 minor prophets, Jonah contains the least amount of actual prophecy. In fact, there's only one single sentence of it. So how did it end up with the prophets when so much of the book is narrative? Well, as we'll see as we move through this book, Jonah is not chiefly prophetical because he's pronouncing direct judgment upon Israel or the nations. What makes him prophetical is that his story is a mirror in which the Israelites are supposed to see themselves. In the book before us, Jonah represents Israel as an entire nation. And as we follow what happened to him, we see a picture of what has already happened with Israel, what is going to happen to them in the future, and how Christ is the fulfillment of it all. This means, unfortunately, that most of the children's stories and cartoons have the story of Jonah all wrong. According to them, this book is just telling us the legend of Jonah. Jonah running away from God. Jonah getting tossed overboard the ship. Jonah getting swallowed by a great fish. Jonah getting vomited back onto dry land. And Jonah preaching in Nineveh. It's all about Jonah. But I beg to differ. In fact, I'm going to propose that Jonah isn't even the main character in this book. A key figure, yes, but not the most important one. As we work through the book, we will find that this book is not about Jonah. It's about God's heart for the lost and his desire to see them repent. And Jonah is only his instrument for revealing that. In this series through the book of Jonah, I want to highlight for us how the Lord is at work and what he's teaching Jonah, and ultimately, his people of all ages, at every step along the way. We'll begin that journey today by seeing how in these first three verses, the Lord commits his reluctant servant to the mission field. We'll look at this theme in three parts. First, the setting of the commission. Second, the content of the commission. And third, the response to the commission. Let's get into the passage and see how this is revealed. In the first verse, we are given the setting of the commission. The first thing for us to see here is how the book starts. It doesn't start with Jonah, but with the word of the Lord. In this way, the opening sentence sets the tone for the entire book. Jonah is a key character, but he's not the main subject. He's only the object of what the Lord is doing and saying through him. In fact, we're told very little about Jonah as a person. We need to turn to 2 Kings to learn more about Jonah and his situation. Chapter 14, verses 23 through 27 is the only other place where Jonah shows up in the Bible. It reads, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Geth Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. For there is none left, bond or free, 
and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Here we gain some insight into the setting that Jonah prophesied in. He was a prophet in the northern kingdom during the reign of Jeroboam II. Chronologically, this makes him a successor of sorts to the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Now the nation of Israel had two main foes at this time of history, Syria to the north and Assyria to the northeast. The books of 1 and 2 Kings record that the nation of Syria had been a large thorn in Israel's side since the days of Ahab. As for Assyria, the Bible doesn't mention them until a generation after Jeroboam II. But archaeology has found evidence that Israel and Assyria were already bitter enemies at this time. A pillar found in the region of Assyria shows Jeroboam II's great-grandfather, King Jehu, bowing before an Assyrian king and paying him tribute. So how did Jeroboam II get out from under the thumbs of these powerful enemies? Was he some sort of military genius? Perhaps, but the short answer is that the Lord arranged it. Archaeological evidence indicates that Assyria had crushed Syria shortly before Jeroboam II began to reign. But Assyria itself soon went into a period of decline because of internal power struggles and famine. So the Lord weakened both Syria and Assyria, which gave Israel relief and allowed them to take back the land that once belonged to them in the days of Solomon. Jonah was privileged to have a front row seat to God blessing his chosen people after generations of oppression. But here's a question we should ask. If Jeroboam II did not depart from the sins of his predecessors, why did God give him military success? The false worship through the golden calves at Dan and Bethel is still going on. So what gives now? What's so special about this king or this time? Well, the answer was given to us in the verses we read from 2 Kings. The Lord saw the affliction of Israel and that there was none to help Israel. So he arranged for their victory. God gave relief to his people because he had compassion on them. He was preserving them to give them another opportunity to fulfill their purpose as a nation. And as a refresher, what was their purpose as a nation? Do you remember what God said to Abram when he first called him to walk by faith? At the beginning of Genesis 12, the Lord tells Abram these familiar words. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham and the nation of Israel were not singled out by God because he was just giving up on the rest of the world and choosing just one people for his own. No, God singled out Abraham and his seed because it was to be through them that salvation would come to the nations. Many other passages of Scripture also testify as to why God chose Israel to be his people and why he placed them where he did. If they obeyed his commandments and worshipped him alone, 
then they would be blessed by him, and God's grace could be channeled to all the nations through them. God's desire was that all the nations of the earth would come to know him through the faithful witness of his chosen people. So we see that the people of Israel clearly had their own great commission to be God's witnesses to the nations around them. And verse 2 will show that Jonah, as a picture of Israel, receives the same calling. And so in our second point, we see the content of the commission. Read with me again the Lord's word to Jonah in verse 2 of our text. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. As a representative of Israel, Jonah has received the same call as the nation itself, to be a witness of the Lord to the nations. Hold on, you say, he's only called to go to Nineveh, not the nations. Yes, but at that time, Nineveh was truly a great city. It was the largest city in the known world, only to be eclipsed by Babylon in decades to come. So Jonah is not just being sent to some random nearby city, you know, like Lowell or Hebron. No, this is a commission to the likes of Chicago or New York City, one of the largest concentrations of people on the earth. So yes, by sending Jonah to Nineveh, in a way, he is going to the nations. But now let's put two and two together. Do you recall what nation Nineveh was prominent in? Nineveh was the military capital of Assyria, Israel's number one enemy in the days of Jonah. Jonah is being called to go to the military hub of his nation's largest threat. It would have been unthinkable for any Israelite to go to Nineveh for any reason. And now Jonah is being sent there on a divine mission from the Lord. And what is the reason that God gives for sending Jonah at this point in time? The end of verse 2 tells us that the evil of Nineveh has gone up before the Lord. The Ninevites certainly were a wicked people. The Assyrians were known for their brutality in war, and the prophet Nahum would later call Nineveh a bloody city. There was certainly plenty of evil going up before God that made him call Jonah to cry out against them. But the Hebrew word translated as evil in verse 2 is a very interesting word, and a word that is used repeatedly throughout this book. It can mean evil or wickedness as translated here, but it can also mean disaster or suffering. Certainly, there is an element of evil in Nineveh that God sees, but could there also be a sense that their suffering has gone up before God? The end of chapter 4 of Jonah indicates that this very well could be. For in verse 11, God says that he pities Nineveh. Nineveh would soon enough be judged for her sins, but first, God wants to give them an opportunity to repent. And by definition, the same applies to all the nations as well. God has a missionary heart that yearns for all to repent from their evil ways and come to know and serve him. I hope you're seeing the clear ties to the Great Commission that Jesus gave to his disciples and to us right before he ascended into heaven. God's heart for the lost people of the world has never changed. The only thing that has changed from the Old Covenant to the New is the way that Gentiles are welcomed into the family of God. 
Let us never make the mistake of thinking that God is only a missionary God in our new covenant period. Our God never changes. He is the same today as he was yesterday, and he will continue to be the same tomorrow. So that leads us to a big question. How big do we think when we think of missions? Is our idea of missions just planting churches in nearby towns when we start to outgrow our own building? As great of a blessing as that is, I have no doubt that most of us realize that missions is bigger than just that. So then, what is big enough? Planting churches in Indianapolis? Downtown Chicago? New York? Why stop there, in our own country? Why not send missionaries to the cities and villages of Europe, Africa, and Asia? Yes, you say, and in fact, we do support missionaries that are doing just that. Okay, so we've captured the breadth of God's mission to the nations, but there's one more aspect of it that Jonah's calling should challenge us in. What about the places of the world where our enemies are? Do you have a heart for reaching the sexually perverse in places like San Francisco? Do you long for the gospel to penetrate the strongholds of ISIS in Africa and the Middle East? Do we want to see our moral and national enemies come to Christ? Or are we content to see them on the path to hell? Brothers and sisters, we should be praying that the gospel would go forth in the darkest of cities and lands and be watching for opportunities to take part in that work. Let's quickly review Jonah's scenario before we move to our third point. Israel has been through decades of power struggle with Syria and Assyria, but now both of those nations are weak and vulnerable. By the word of the Lord through Jonah, Jeroboam II has been able to take back from those nations much of Israel's former territory, and Israel finally feels like it's caught a break. But instead of telling Jonah to prophesy that Israel would continue to expand and fully conquer her enemies, the Lord tells him to go to Nineveh itself and preach. To Jonah, this must have seemed absurd. Why would God do this? Why would God want Jonah to preach to the very city that has been threatening Israel's earthly existence. We know that God desires for them to repent and live, but apparently Jonah doesn't see it that way, as shown by his response to the commission. Jonah wants nothing to do with this calling from the Lord. He was happy to prophesy of Israel's future success, but prophesying to an enemy nation is not something he's willing to do. Listen again to verse 3 of our text. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Notice the use of language in this verse. God's command to Jonah was to arise and go to Nineveh. But Jonah rises and goes down, down, down. In one sense, his going down is literally true. He had to go down from the hills of Israel to the coastal city of Joppa, and then he had to go down from the dock into the belly of the ship. But I think the use of the word down is spiritually purposeful as well. Jonah's going down 
is indicative of his spiritual condition. He is disobeying and becoming more spiritually distant from God. And why does Jonah flee instead of just staying put and refusing to go? On one hand, you could say that Jonah wants to get as far away from the land where God's presence dwells. But as a prophet of the Lord, surely he knew that nobody can truly flee flee from God's presence. More likely, Jonah is just trying to get as far away from Israel as possible so that God finds it more convenient to assign this missionary task to a different prophet. Maybe he thinks that his rebellion will disqualify him from being a prophet of the Lord. Here again, we see how Jonah is representative of the nation of Israel. For just as Jonah abandoned his commission to be a witness to the nations, so Israel had abandoned theirs. Jonah chose the route of disobedience rather than being faithful to his calling to Nineveh. The same goes for Israel. Instead of living faithfully before the Lord and being a blessing to the nations around them, they worshipped false gods and lived disobedient lives. So why was Israel reluctant to be a witness to the nations around them? And why was Jonah so adverse to being a missionary to Nineveh? It seems that Israel and Jonah had developed an extremely narrow view of their election as God's people. A level of pride had crept into their hearts as they began to believe that they had been chosen by God not to be witnesses, but to be a privileged people. They had completely lost sight of their purpose of witnessing to the world around them. Jonah himself makes this clear in chapter 4, after God relents from punishing Nineveh. He says there in verse 2, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Jonah was happy to prophesy when it meant God would have mercy on Israel and allow their borders to expand. But he does not want to see God's grace extending to Israel's enemies. In Jonah and Israel's eyes, the only thing that should be poured out on Nineveh and the nations is justice and wrath, not mercy. They want to keep God's steadfast love, patience, mercy, and grace all to themselves. How about us? Have we let pride blur our vision for missions? Do we treat God's blessings as deserved privileges or as opportunities to bless others? If we're honest with ourselves, I think we can all see that we're not that much different from the people of Israel. Just like them, it's easy for us to think that we have it pretty good because we are pretty good. How easy it is for us to look out at all the sin in the world and say, Boy, I can sure see why God chose us and not them. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, may that not be our attitude towards God's electing love towards us. How quickly we forget that in God's eyes, the sins we still harbor in our own hearts are just as condemning as the sins of our enemies. In God's eyes, are you and I any more deserving of grace than combative atheists, the sexually perverse, 
and extremist Muslims? Are we? Until we can admit that the answer to that question is a resounding no, we will refuse God's mission just like Jonah did. How often we need to be reminded that we love God because he first loved us. There is nothing inherently in us that deserves God's love. We will struggle to share in God's heart for the nations if we don't embrace that reality. We desperately need to see the same thing that the Israelites and Jonah needed to see. That God's choosing us and blessing us should not puff us up, but drive us to be witnesses to the world of how great our God is. So where does this leave us? We've seen that Israel failed in their commission to be God's witnesses to the nations. We've seen that Jonah failed in his commission to witness to the Ninevites. And we recognize that we also fail to be the faithful witnesses that we're called to be. Is there any hope that God's name will be proclaimed to the lost people of the earth? It seems not, as far as it depends on men. But there is hope. There is hope because of one man who was also God. There is hope because that one God-man did not fail in his mission here on earth. Christ's mission on earth was to be crushed for our sins, to make one ultimate sacrifice for our wickedness, and then be raised in glory on the third day. And he endured all of that because he knew that we could never bear it ourselves. How comforting it is to know that our witness to the world does not depend on how good we are, but on how good Christ already has been. Christ and his Holy Spirit are now the fount from which grace flows out to the world. Listen to how beautifully Isaiah puts this in chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. When we witness to the world, we have the pleasure of pointing the nations to the finished work of the light of the world. And, we, and when we fail to live up to our calling, we can rest assured that there is forgiveness to be found in him. God's love for us does not change depending on how well we are carrying out his will for us. God's love for us is everlasting and unchanging because he loves us in Christ. And if you are here today and have not put your faith in the one who has completed your work for you, I call you to turn to him in repentance and faith. Do not go another day without the promise of eternal life through faith in Christ. The Lord committed his own son to the mission field as a sacrifice for your and my sins. Praise God that Christ is the one who perfectly fulfilled all that was laid out for him to do. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we praise you because you are the God who seeks the lost. 
Thank you for showing that to us in just these first few verses of Jonah. Lord, we acknowledge that we fall short of sharing your heart for all the lost people of the world. Renew us, and may our hearts long for every sinner to come to know you. Keep us from being proud of our salvation. Remind us that we are no more deserving of your mercy and grace than our neighbors. Lord, as we go out from this place, may we be sanctified by your Spirit and grow in desire to see the world repent and believe. May it be our desire to see you glorified by all the nations of the earth. Amen.